Warning. The following broadcast is not approved by your teacher, university, politician, or government. Side effects may include skepticism, better reasoning skills, liberty, peace, and an escape from the woke. Welcome to the show. I am your host, L.B. Muniz, and this is the Been Awake Podcast for Better Sense Making. If you are within the sound of my voice and you haven't visited beenawake.com, can I ask you to do that today? Hey, and if you want, Substack just released this pretty cool new app thingamabobber that you can go and you can read myself and all your favorite Substack content creators over in this nice little clean app. It's only on iPhone right now, but you can sign up for the waitlist. Wanted to get that away off the top. They're, you know, asking people to promote it. And I, um, I was thinking a lot recently over the last few weeks it's been a bit since my last show last live show at least gosh has the world changed still not exactly sure where i want to start the conversation so we're gonna we're gonna start it here just by you know i um i've just i've decided that i'm going to keep substack as my main home online of course you can still find me on twitter and instagram and all those places but as far as uh, as a creator where i would ask you to go it is of course beenawake.com that takes you to the substack page and uh, subscribe there. Readers and listeners are always appreciated. But if you enjoy the content enough to become a patron, when you become a patron, that means I get to dedicate more time to this. I get I dedicate I get I get to dedicate more of my hours in the day, um, focusing on making sense of the world's most complicated problems, and that's what I really like to do. But what I also like to do is make money, and one of the best things I ever did in my life was telling myself it's okay to focus on the things that make you money. Uh, whether that's what you want to be doing all the time is beside the point. If you focus on the things that make you money, if you make them a priority, you'll not only, I'd like to think you'll not only, you know, make more of that, of those dollars or Bitcoin or however you choose to get paid, but that you will find that you can make money doing things that you enjoy. And I enjoy my main hustle, but I enjoy this a lot more. So think about it. Become a patron over at beenawake.com. Your first year is 50% off. And uh, like I said, the more people who subscribe, the more great content you get. Uh, we are live. If you're catching the replay of this, I am live on YouTube and Twitter. Did I put anything out beforehand? No. Why? Because I don't know. It's just how I do things. Sometimes I just got to hop into it and get something done. So where are we, where are we going to start today? Where do we start the clock, right? I've got a lot of, um, for a while, not for a while, for a couple of weeks, honestly, I wasn't sure about how I wanted to cover something like the current engagement in Ukraine, the current war that's being waged between, well, between whom, right? Is it between Russia and Ukraine only? I don't think that's the right way of looking at it. And I've been trying to figure out ways that I can demonstrate that to people who don't pay attention to foreign to foreign affairs. Now, if you listen to if you listen to some more you know established sources, and if you listen, especially sources on the left, you'll there is a um, there's a high degree there's a high correlation between 
people who pay attention to, let's say, broadly speaking, foreign affairs, right? Things that happen outside of the United States of America. And a lot of people who pay close attention to foreign affairs like to make it known how much they pay attention to foreign affairs. And I would consider myself one of them, by the way. It's it's very difficult it, it, with anything, with anything where you develop a, a level of expertise when more people, that is to say, when a mass audience starts to pay attention to the same thing, it can be difficult for you to express yourself and not come off like a conceited SOB. One of the ways you can mitigate that is by having a show where you are being a little conceited at times actually benefits you. But another, but, but I've been, so I've been trying in my personal life and that people call me outside of doing this just to say like, Hey, what's going on? What am I supposed to think about this? You know, or what, what, what is happening? What's your take on what's going on? And so of course, as, as I, as I speak, there has been a protracted conflict in Ukraine where Russian forces, well, you know, if we're going to take the official narrative from, uh, from that side of the world, they declared certain areas of the country autonomous and then went into those areas to provide protection. It's a nice little, uh, it's a nice little turn of phrase. And of course, I think from an American perspective, you hear something like that. You hear that the Russian leader, Vladimir Putin, was uh, decided to, you know, name these regions independent and then said like, well, we're going to now provide protection for these independent regions. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Who are you, right? Who are you, leader of Russia, to decide that this is so? And that's where I want to start today. That's where we're going to start, which is my crash course in geopolitics. Because, of course, geopolitics is the name of the game that we're playing. This isn't about a presidential election cycle. This isn't even about American adventurism like we have had with the terror wars, right? Because the American terror wars that have been fought through the for the 21st century are very much about American adventurism. We are halfway across the world, nowhere near our borders, uh, you know, nation building, trying to institute democracy in parts of the world that, uh, you know, I don't know, I guess we can do a postmortem on that something else some other time, I think we can do, we can talk about that, but suffice it to say it's different in kind than the type of engagement that, that, that the Russians are engaged at the moment. And of course, in the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian government is trying to defend against with European and U S help. So we're going to get in a little bit of that. Uh, we're going to go through a timeline that I've built that I really think kinds of that, that will put things in a better perspective than what you're going to get anywhere else, which is why you come to the show, which is why you listen. So we're going to cover that timeline. I've got a couple of less. I got a lesson I want to share from the fourth generational warfare handbook because it's critical. It's critical to understand fourth and fifth generational warfare if you want to understand this issue, just like it's critical to understand geopolitics and what you can do about them. So one of the reasons why I want to serve this up the way that I am is to make sure you, the listener, the reader, the consumer, especially as you're going out there and you're looking at things from other sources, is you understand this is a different kind of game, geopolitics, than most of the political analysis that you deal with. And there are reasons for that, but let's go ahead and go quickly through the piece that I wrote kind of covering that. So by the way, if you're not following me on Instagram, there's a lot of great uh, just, you know, nice graphics and stuff. You'll see them on Twitter too, but I'm trying to make Instagram more of a presence. So go follow me on the, at the LB Muniz, uh, you know, put this Canva subscription I got to good work. 
which you can kind of see if you're watching this right now, a crash course in geopolitics. So according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, always a good place to start with a dictionary definition, geopolitics is a study of the influence of factors such as geography, economics, and demography on the politics and especially the foreign policy of a state. So that's the official definition. So we want to focus on factors such as geography. We want to focus on economic factors. And we want to focus on demography, the demographics, the, the makeup of a given state or insta, uh, state or government country, if you will. And the politics, especially foreign policy. So why does foreign policy matter? We'll get into that. With the recent Russian military campaign in eastern Ukraine, Americans have found themselves once again having to contend with the complicated game of brinksmanship that makes up the geopolitical landscape, reading from the piece, of course, here. The problem, of course, is that the American press, by and large, of course, there are other good outlets out there. This is how I've learned this stuff. But if you're just tuning into the major, the major institutions, the American press has no vested interest in giving Americans a reasonable or worthwhile picture about, geo, about geopolitics or the world at large. I want to briefly share one fact, two tactics you can use. So three things that you can use to begin to understand the game being played in front of your eyes. Number one, when we're talking about geopolitics, it's really important for you to remember the vast majority of people. Maybe maybe somebody, maybe there, there could be somebody listening to this where this is not true. But for the vast majority of the people who listen to this show, you are not in control. And neither am I, by the way. You're not in control when it comes to geopolitics. It may be the case that you are encouraged to post your support online, that you're supposed to donate your dollars, or put another country's flag over your social media profile picture. This doesn't change the fact that you have, you as an individual, have no control over what is happening across the world. It may seem like an obvious remark, but it's where you need to start thinking when we approach the subject of geopolitics. See, a lot of American politics especially is all about, it's all about, manuf it's all about deriving consent from the governed, right? That's the stated purpose of democracy. And so because we vote, we think that we have control over the government and, the institution and institutions of power. Now, depending on who you talk to, they might disagree with a statement like that. But that's not what I'm trying to get at here. I'm trying to get at is most of the time when you deal with politics, you think you have some semblance of control. Whether you actually do or not is beside the point. Because you, you, it's, it's nice that you think that in a way, right? It, 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 because, you know, it's the same reason why you might check the weather before you go out. You don't have any control over the weather, but it's nice to know what the weather today is going to be. And of course, you can plan for it. But when it comes to geopolitics, you have absolutely no control. If you think that posting on social media or stating that you support the people of a given country makes a difference, it's because you are watching consent being manufactured in real time. Because that's actually what mass campaigns are about. You know, we didn't really talk about, I, I didn't really write about or talk about on the show the, the protests in Canada that happened right before this military engagement in Russia that has taken over the news cycle. But it's really worth realizing that if you were a Canadian who gave $15 to a trucker to buy gas, the Canadian police were knocking down your door, and now 
we see, for better or for worse, like one of my best friends in the world is Ukrainian. So I and and you know, and I understand what it is to be to have that immigrant story. And I understand what it is to feel the cry of a people you don't entirely belong to. Because I very much feel that as an American. And I think a lot of Americans have that because we are simultaneously connected to this land, but also a land before. Because even though most of us have spent our entire lives here, we often define ourselves in the American context to where our lineage came from. Whereas if, let's say, you're a family from Italy who never left Italy, all you are is Italian. So it's it's so I, I I can understand that I can understand the way people feel about this and of course I'm very tuned in to how people feel because I've become very aware of how feelings are used by position by institutions of power to manipulate your perception of the world and we're going to get a little bit into that in the next piece. If you think you're making a difference by posting on social media, like I don't like this podcast is not at a point where it's going to make a national difference, but it makes a difference in your life because you get a better perspective of things and all that we have to do to make that, to have it create a national impact would be to, you know, I don't know, share the show with a friend, make it grow. That's, that's, that's what I endeavor. That's what we're working on here, right? Growth so that people can have better sense making in their daily life. But I don't presume that every tweet that I have is going to affect a million, millions of people's lives. So why is the inverse considered the case, right? Like expressing solidarity, changing your, your, your picture on Facebook, waving flags of another country, putting them in your profile. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the standpoint of, it comes from manufacturing consent. It comes from creating the perception that people support this. And how do you support this? Well, you support this in part by doing the things that people in power tell you to do. It's so it's a feedback effect. Again, this is this is clinical, this is dispassionate analysis of the facts at hand as I see them. And I can't help but point out the fact that you couldn't send $15 to Canadian truckers without the Mounties knocking at your door. There are people in jail for sending small amounts, their bank accounts being frozen. By the way, a lot of those truckers were probably Ukrainian or other refugees or other immigrants from parts of the world where they were escaping authoritarian regimes because that's, that's a lot of people who end up truckers. Not, you know, maybe 50-50. I don't know what the breakdown is. But I would, I would put, I'd, I'd put heavy odds that at least one of them is Ukrainian. So you can't support a Ukrainian in Canada peacefully demonstrating against their government. But you can support the massive humanitarian effort going on for the people of Ukraine, such that the App Store on Apple has a direct link that you can donate to. And this is a war, people. This is a war. Now, you might think, oh, well, my you know, money is going to humanitarian aid. And I, of course, the sober realist has to remind you that money is fungible. So for every dollar that comes in via aid, that's another dollar you can spend on arms. Again, this has nothing to do with whether it is right or wrong for the people of Ukraine to defend themselves against Russian aggression. In fact, I would say based off the framing of that, you could understand why somebody would pick up arms and defend their farm or defend where they are from, where their family has lived for generations because another army decided to decided that they belong to them now. Or does it get more complicated? See, 
this is the problem. Most of the news you talk, most of the news you talk about that you talk about and consume in a popular way, they don't have the time frame or the bandwidth to really get into the nitty gritty. And frankly, even as I sit here monologuing, I'm like, oh man, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty just yet. That's why I wrote pieces that, that put things in a good perspective. So what's rule number two? What's, what's the second point about in your crash course to, geog- uh, to geopolitics? Root for the home team. This is just a recognition that I've had to make, and so I'm sharing it with you, that most humans, the way in which most humans are going to interact and understand geopolitics is by rooting for their home team. You also might say, you know, just rooting for the country that you're from. As a friend and patron put it to me recently, American hegemony is pretty good for me. Now, as a sense maker, it is my duty to dig deeper into stories and find the appropriate context to present to my readers and listeners. It doesn't follow from this that everyone can or wants to do the same thing. In fact, the safest thing for the casual observer to do is root for the home team, a.k.a. the country you live in. So, so your default position is, generally speaking, is, is, are they doing something to us? Right? Because we think of ourselves as, and you know, for the vast majority of my audience, Americans. Now, you can root for the home team, but the third point is where things get complicated. And the third point I wanted to draw out is that different stories shape the world. If everyone naturally roots for their home team, it implies that there are multiple stories being told, right? So if you're from another country, you have a different home team, as the case may be. The real insights from geopolitics come as you peel back the layers of your own biases. Of course, by doing so, you might find yourself under the eraser of tech censures. And if you're not careful, you will find yourself at odds with close friends and family. It takes bravery to stand up against the herd, but bravery alone won't change the direction of popular opinion. For that, you need to build your network of trust and become the authority people turn to in a time of crisis, in little and big ways. It doesn't mean everybody's going to become a Roger Ailes who owns a you know, media conglomerate. But maybe it means that you know if somebody comes to you and says, hey, should I go overseas and fight right now? You might say, eh, maybe not. Maybe so. But maybe you listen and you find out what that person's going through. But that's my crash course in geopolitics. You're not in control. You can root for the home team, but understand that different stories shape the world. And if we can't dispassionately look at multiple sides of an equation of a story of the stories being told, we know we're dealing with emotionally charged rhetoric, I that is to say propaganda. Which brings me into my next piece, is this the end of the world? The war for your attention and feelings. I wrote this. I wrote this last week. Noticeably absent from my coverage up until now at BeenAwake.com has been the war in Ukraine. In recent appearances, though, which by the way, you can always catch my appearances on other people's shows by going to BeenAwake.com/appearances. You can bookmark that page. I always try to keep it updated when I go on somebody else's show. If you're ever wondering why you might not see stuff coming out of Been Awake per se, a lot of times it's because somebody asked me to do something with them. And so I just, you know, 
only have a certain number of hours I can dedicate to this during the week. And doing other people's show is great for exposure and, and for reach. And, and it's fun to have conversations with other creators. So in recent appearances, I have talked about my method. And that is to say, my method is what makes this newsletter, this home of beenawake.com, this project for better sense making, better than 90% of content creators, whether they have a show on Fox News or a makeshift studio in their garage. While humans have the capacity for reason, you understand, it is a capacity for it. It is not guaranteed in, in equally in every case, but there is a capacity there to reason, right? To, to process information and, you know, come up with solutions or rationalize thought, give words to ideas. It's always fun how like when you're trying to go deep again, I, I make this point all the time, but suddenly, suddenly you find that the words are simple and yet that makes it more complicated to express. While humans have the capacity for reason, we are also instinctual and emotional creatures. There are millions of years of evolution behind the way we feel and the way we perceive the world. So for whatever else happens in our brains, right? Again, we have an analytical side. We have this capacity for reason as humans. That is undeniable. And in fact, I think it was Plato or Plato Socrates would make the point that what makes man different is his capacity to reason, right? Man is, man is that animal which reasons. I think that was Plato Socrates. I could be wrong. It's either that or Aristotle. But, beside, but, but what they didn't understand and what we do today is that there are millions of years of evolution that go before that rational perception of the world, that ability to rationalize things the complex way in which we can put ideas and thoughts together as humans. There's millions of years behind that. Millions of years spanning beyond, right, as Jordan Peterson talks about in 12 Rules for Life, beyond even the humans, like, beyond even primates, per se. The idea of hierarchy is ingrained, for example. This is the point of lobsters that, Jordan, that, that, that people often made fun about, made fun of Jordan Peterson for. But of course, the point is that even lobsters have a hierarchy. And in fact, that hierarchy is in fact, and that hierarchy can be manipulated through like serotonin, right? Through antidepressants. So there's a correlation there. Millions of years go behind the, our initial, especially our initial perception, the way we feel about something or, or, or a situation. There's, there's, and, and, and a lot of that, going back to the point we just made about geopolitics, is, in effect, outside of our control. It is something you have to learn to manage. And that's, by the way, part of what I think practicing skepticism gives you. Powerful institutions understand very well that we are creatures who feel, that we are emotional creatures. Whether it's a university recruiting students, a news outlet looking for clicks, or a government waging war. Your feelings mean far more to them than what you think about a situation. Oh, sure, they'll talk about critical reasoning. They'll talk about its importance. But what they really care about, and when you, when you look into it, when you start to understand how you, how you create a mass campaign, how you get millions of people to do something. Think about that. How do you get millions of people to do something? You don't reason with them. 
You make them feel something. That's what that's what that's what art does. That's what movies do. Makes you feel. That's why you that's ostensibly why you want to go and, and consume something like that. And so powerful, and again, to reiterate the point, powerful institutions understand this very well. A university sells you on an idea of college that has nothing to do with your reason. In fact, most of the time, they won't even talk about the fact that you're going to that college to learn. It's all about the experience, the lifestyle, what they can offer their students that other universities cannot, be it a sports team or a particular kind of, uh, you know, a particular kind of campus life. The news outlet knows if you if they write something that pisses you off, you're probably going to click it. And so they have an incentive to do that. And when we think about a government waging war, well, in what other instance can we really think about a situation where how you feel about the situation really matters? If for no other reason, then you might be called up to fight. Or conscripted, as the case may be. There is no end. This is, this is part of my method and how I like to talk about things. There is no ultimate end. There is no, there is no place, as far as I can tell, there might, it might be, it might, but you know, it's so far away, it's, it's pointless to talk about. There is no, in, in reality, right, in, this, in whatever the world outside of our minds is, it appears to me, at least, there really is no final end. There is only a new beginning. While we are finite creatures, humans, we are finite creatures who have an expiration date. The world will keep spinning after you or I stop being. Does that make sense? We have an expiration date, but the world is going to keep spinning after we're gone. When a human consciousness is faced with this conflicting information, the conflicting information being our, our finitude in the world's eternality, we might say, the fact, that the, the fact that the world keeps spinning after we're gone, it creates the conditions for what many refer to as an existential crisis. Given that we are social creatures, it is natural for us to turn to other humans to make sense of our experience. Translation? When you hear about a conflict halfway around the world that could literally go nuclear, as we have with the conflict in Ukraine, you turn on the news. Why? Because for better or worse, they're the authority. That's how you've been raised. To explain the multiple threads, we're going to do some of this next, by the way, but to explain the multiple threads or in, in two pieces that make up the tapestry of a conflict like what is happening in Ukraine, takes longer than the format established by cable news outlets and, frankly, even by like a newspaper column. The primary mission of these institutions, therefore, is not to help you understand the reasons for war, but to herd you, quite literally herd you, towards a particular emotional reaction about the war. See, for most of humanity, war is hell. It displaces, it destroys, it separates, it maims, it kills. My prayer, by the way, is, is always for peace. I, am a, I consider myself a man of peace. But that doesn't mean 
but being a man of peace doesn't mean you're afraid to defend yourself. You understand? Being a man of peace is understanding the horrors of war. There is, however, there is a minority of humans for whom war is an opportunity. War is an opportunity for them to build power and for them to acquire wealth. Whether it's the Situation Room in the White House or a boardroom of defense contractors, war is a game that they get to play to win big. That's just, there's a great book, great essay by, I think, a General Smudley is his name, who at the time was one of the, was the highest decorated member of the U.S. Armed Forces, who wrote a great essay called War is a Racket. I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't already. But in that, he details you know, precisely why war is a racket. But it boils down to what I just said, that while for the vast majority of the people who are dealing with this conflict on both sides, right, we've seen both, we've seen both the plight of the Ukrainian people, and there's also been moments of showing the plight of, of Russian soldiers who didn't quite understand what they were getting into, which is which is a tale as old as time. It is more often than not the case that a soldier who is in a foreign land does not understand what he is getting into or why he's there fully. He can't. He's just following orders after all. So while war is hell for us, we might say, for them, war is a game. War is a chance to win big. If what I'm saying, by the way, sounds, sounds callous, it's only because most of the press that you consume chooses not to tell you this story correctly. I'm struck, I'm struck in particular the way that media outlets capitalize on war because it's great for ratings. And make no mistake about that, they know this very, very well. And they might hide behind the fact that they have an ostensible duty to give information to their viewers, as I'm sure most of the major press outlets would. But that doesn't change the fact that they're profiting off of it. You understand? Especially when you, under, especially when you realize the degree to which their propagandistic efforts actually feed a war effort. So I'm thinking of, you know, the correspondents who go into war zones to talk to the people whose lives are being destroyed in real time. And then they get to go back to a safe hotel room or, you know, fly home to a different country. By the way, this has always been the case. You understand? There have been wars raging across the continents for the entirety of the 21st century. It just matters where they shine the spotlight. And so when I look and I see the degree to which they shine the spotlight in a place like Ukraine, I become um, perturbed. And perturbed because, again, war is hell. And so people who are in positions of power should reflect that and should make sure that if they're going to show the horrors of war, they show the horrors of all war so that it comes to an end and so that they don't feed the beast. Let's return to your, to your emotions. Let's forget mine for a moment. When I started writing the piece, right, Is This the End of the World?, I was celebrating a close friend's birthday. I, we, I was out of town. I was having a good time. I was actually sitting 
and, uh, you know, like a brunch type thing. In addition to my group, there were countless people celebrating that weekend. When I would check my Twitter, as I, you know, kind of reflexively do at this point, I would see the fear porn, right? So here I am having a great time celebrating my friend's birthday, being hanging out with some, hanging out with a bunch of people who I now call my friends, just enjoying my morning, enjoying my life, which I encourage you to do as well. If you need permission, God help you if you do. But some, but I understand what that is actually. <laughs> of like, of kind of needing somebody to say, hey, dude, you need to go have some fun. It does matter, no matter how much of a homebody you consider yourself. But every time I would open up my Twitter feed, I would see the fear porn. If you had to view the world, if all you had to view the world was a Twitter timeline, you might think civilization was on the brink of collapse, that the world is going to end tomorrow. It makes me wonder what good words like genocide and war crimes are if people are going to tweet them out anytime there is a major conflict in the world. By the way, again, to make the point, doesn't mean that there haven't been war crimes committed. I just mean to say every time there is a conflict, there's somebody out there saying genocide. There's somebody out there saying war crime. And when we don't save words like that for the most important cases, for the worst of atrocities, we run into a problem of, you know, poisoning the well. It's the boy who cried wolf, you understand. The boy who cried wolf was lonely guarding the sheep, and so he cried out saying that he was being attacked just to just to kind of get people going, right? Just to rile them up. And then one day, when it really mattered, nobody was there. Nobody was there to help him, and he died. So we have to be careful. So that, that's what that line is about, by the way, if you were reading this and wondering, is, is just, it's just a lament at that fact. And it's one of the reasons why I tried to choose my words so carefully here at beenawake.com. See you, reiterating a point we've already made on this show, you have no power when it comes to world events. While the perception crafted by press outlets may lead you to believe otherwise, there really isn't anything the average person can do to make a difference in resolving the current conflict. The question then becomes what one should do in the face of such information. This led me to sending out a tweet and posting on Instagram the following sentiment. If you have the choice between the end of the world and mimosas, you choose mimosas. This isn't to say don't keep yourself informed, right? I clearly do. But it is to say, and this is especially important if, you're like, if you've recently been awakened, right? If you've recently started to see what is actually going on around you as it relates to government and, institu- and government and the press and the media and the universities and all those other things. If you've recently become aware of just how bad it is, I think it's really important that you understand overexposing yourself to the fear porn is not going to help anybody. Constantly exposing yourself to this is not good for your health. Trust me, 
I've done it poorly in the past. Moreover, given that press outlets don't have an incentive to be accurate or truthful in reporting, there is a high likelihood you will end up misinformed about a conflict if you obsess over the coverage. If anybody wants to take me up on a bet, I'm willing to make the following bet. I'm willing to make the following bet that about 40% of the stories that were reported in these early in these in late February, early March of 2022 as it relates to the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, I'll make a bet that about 40% of the stories are going to have inaccuracies in them. They're going to be inaccuracies of two kind. One is an inaccuracy of omission, which is to say you didn't know any better. And then the other is an inaccuracy of commission or what we might call propagandistic efforts. So whether whether the story is true or not, we're going to tell it because it's good for morale. Now, by the way, we just started talking about like, you know, this is all about your emotions. And in some respects, if you're trying to lead people in a certain direction, you want to do that. You as the person taking in that information, then you need to be aware that this is what people are doing to you so that you can make a determination whether that whether it's appropriate to feel, whether it's appropriate to feel the way that they want you to feel about a situation. The reason I choose mimosas, well, I was drinking one at the time. That's why I said mimosas, because I was having one. But it's not really about drinking champagne and orange juice at 10 a.m. on a Saturday, but I would recommend the indulgence every now and then. Your work, your relationships, and anything you care about will suffer if you're not careful about when and how you expose yourself to the awfulness of the world. Because there will always be awfulness in this world. We live in a fallen world, as people might say. There is evil and there is there are bad things that happen. And that can be tough for people to kind of like really embrace the first few times because a lot of again, a lot of the way that information is kind of present is presented to you, especially if you're especially if you're just a go along to get along kind of person. You, you you would gain the impression that, you know, that there really isn't anything all that bad that happens out there. As someone who has spent, me, as somebody who has spent the majority of his adult life as a news junkie, I can attest to this very well. It's not like this conflict in Ukraine is some new development. In fact, it follows a very clear pattern of engagement that has been playing out over the course of my lifetime. To, re- to reiterate a point made above, the major press outlets do a poor job of framing this for you because they don't want you informed. They want you feeling upset. Let's pretend, for the sake of argument, that the world really, despite everything that I've said, that I don't think there is an end, that there are only new beginnings, that even though we are finite creatures who will one day die, the world will keep spinning. Let's say tomorrow the world stops spinning. If you have no power to stop it, what good is obsessing over it? It's a natural part of our human condition to fear death and to fear things like war that bring death. However, what you need to understand in the 21st century is how that feeling can be capitalized upon, manipulated, and pushed, and and therefore, and, and help push you in a direction that other people want to go. And maybe those people 
are the ones. And in fact, more often than not, they are. Those people are the ones who choose to profit off of death and destruction. So will you really let them win? I've talked about this next article on a couple other shows. It's called Why They're Suddenly Telling You the Truth. I wrote this mostly about the COVID regime because, of course, everybody knows now that there's a war on, COVID is over. It's not over, by the way. We're going to get into a little bit of, as to why. But I want to talk about, but, but before, there, before the conflict in Ukraine, a lot of people were asking, why is it that all the things that I was seeing reported in alternative sources, why are they just now being reported in mainstream sources? And it has to do with a narrative discipline. So narrative discipline is a conflict, is, is a concept I've been developing over the last year. It's a very prominent method of social control where the boundaries of debate are clearly set so that players know where not to tread. So, so I know where what I can argue and what I can't. This is what narrative discipline provides. When these boundaries prove to be inaccurate, they can and are changed but only by establishing new boundaries that no one is ever to step outside again. See? So it's a question of who sets those boundaries. This is to say, narrative discipline is the means by which the press and government set what an acceptable opinion is. I want you to think about a pressure cooker. If you've never seen one before, you can go to binawake.com or you can just Google it and you can see a picture of it. Pressure cookers trap hot gas produced by boiling water inside of the pot so that your food cooks faster. It has a valve at the top that lets excess steam and heat escape so your cooking device does not become an explosive one. There is an analogy to draw with the news cycle. The agenda-driven narratives of the corporate cathedral class. The corporate cathedral class include major universities, corporate press outlets, and progressive government. They are designed to keep the consumer informed enough to know what your opinion ought to be, but not so informed that you begin to ask questions. So the agenda-driven narratives, and we were just talking about, about these agenda-driven narratives in the last piece, right? Is the world going to end? That's an agenda-driven narrative. Because anybody who's seriously looking at the equation realizes that even in the case of a nuclear holocaust, and humanity might cease to be. But again, the world will keep spinning. It, these agenda-driven narratives are designed to keep you, the consumer, informed just enough to know what your opinion ought to be, but not so informed that you begin to ask questions. This is why, by the way, this is why alternative media outlets are reducing the power and influence of outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, and yes, even Fox News. Some alternative media outlets to be fair, are just a new form of corporate journalism, but just as many independent and authentic outlets like this one, for example, are competing beyond their weight class, to borrow an analogy from combat sports, which is why you can see smaller outlets sometimes getting the story right well before the big ones do, because the big ones have an agenda to keep. And again, that goes for Fox News as well as CNN, as we're seeing, by the way, with this war effort, with, of course, the exception of Tucker Carlson. As the pressure of the news cycle builds, as it did over Christmas and into New Year's, you will inevitably find a prominent comedian with a corporate show speaking common sense. 
when Dr. Email, when Dr. Emails, when Dr. Fauci, who nobody's seen in a month, when his emails were released over the summer of 2021, John Stewart appeared on the late show and it was deemed because and, and, and he made it OK to talk about the lab leak hypothesis. In true comedic fashion, John Stewart went on the late show with Stephen Colbert and pointed out the absurdity found in a situation where a global pandemic begins in a city with a research facility that researches the exact kind of disease that caused the pandemic that we can't point it out. We couldn't point that out two years ago, lest we be banned from Facebook. Now we can. And so, of course, one of the more recent ones that happened in this instance that this piece uh, focused on was a viral clip that comes to us from real time with Bill Maher and special guest Barry Weiss. In the clip, Barry Weiss, flanked by Maher and a Democratic congressman, explains how she went so hard on COVID. She wiped down her groceries. She stripped off her clothes for fear of the virus being on them. And then she talks about how you were told to get the vaccine and get you to get you back to normal. And we didn't even get back to normal. Oh, my gosh. You remember this happening, by the way? It's actually kind of good that I didn't cover this on the show in real time because this article was posted. Let's see. When did I post this? January 30th. So it's been a month and a half. Think how long ago that seems. She then lists off a myriad of things that many alternative media personalities and outlets have pointed out for months, like the fact that cloth masks are ineffective, that psychological damage being done to children via remote learning and mask compliance, that showing a vaccine card to eat doesn't accomplish anything if the vaccinated can catch and spread the disease, and an increase in self-harm and deaths of despair amongst children and the population at large. Suddenly you, the outside observer, the observer, if you will, who's outside the clutches of the corporate press, if you are an alternative media consumer, you start to get confused. You get confused because you were just censored on a social media platform for saying something that Barry Weiss gets to go on HBO and say now. Hmm. Now, you might even say, it's hypocritical. Let's talk about why that's a problem. The internet can maximize the ability of regular people to access information. This being said, outlets of great power and influence still fight for control over what the approved opinion is. Given the stakes and level of sophistication to the game, they engage in countermeasures that stop their opposition from gaining leverage and use their rhetoric against them. Let's use masks, for example. Fauci has contradicted himself on mask wearing multiple times over the course of the last two years. And by the way, as I'm, as I'm doing this episode, we're almost two years in. You understand? First claiming that the masks don't do anything, then claiming he said there wouldn't, then claiming he only said that the masks don't do anything so there wouldn't be a run on M95 masks. Then Fauci said any face covering was acceptable. And then it was said you shouldn't wear face masks with vents, gaiters, bandanas, and so on. Then they said you should double mask. That way you could wear the cutesy little canvas one over your official, over your real heavy duty one. Then you didn't have to wear a mask at all if you were vaccinated. And then you did again. Now, the push seems for everyone to wear the M95 mask. And you can even get them for free. Of course, we've seen how that narrative has disappeared in the face of something, uh, shall we say, more compelling for people. I think people were getting tired of the, of the constant rage against COVID. At each step, Fauci's advice had a contradictory narrative that had the support of empirical evidence. 
Fauci's narrative also had empirical evidence to support its claim. After all, and this is the point we're talking about as it relates to narrative discipline, the science may change, but only when Mr. Science says so. Too often, voices, conservative and voices on the right, call out Democrats on the left as being hypocritical because most of their prominent politicians are playing the same game of social control. It does not benefit establishment Republicans to embrace populist energy because they're just as guilty as the Democrats are for the state of modern America. We've watched throughout this pandemic how the powers that be let the steam out of a tense news cycle. But when the pressure is let out, people forget how it happens. The pressure then builds and is let out, establishing new boundaries for the narrative discipline so that people in power remain there. Because that's what it's about. It's about the person at the top in that we can describe them. It might not be one person. It might be a group, an organization, not even a coalition. People acting independently animated by the same idea. But whoever gets to determine what that, where that narrative, where the boundaries of the narrative are, they have a lot of power. By the time your rhetoric becomes an approved opinion, you've already moved on. And it's easy to feel resentment at the person inside of the narrative who is now saying something today that you were arguing months ago. So there's an additional layer of tension where even if you're outside of the narrative, it actually you actually serve their purpose because you seemed crazy six months ago and now you seem crazy again when like, you know, your cousin who only watches CNN said the, you know, said something like, oh, masks never worked anyway. There, there's a piece sitting in my, um, my open tabs that's like, you know, like that masking laws don't have to make sense. Literally, like that was the headline. I'm like, oh man, it's like this is written for me. So, you know, we might cover that. The tension, though, that, that occurs there benefits the ruling class because it reinforces the in-group and the out-group and the, and the narratives that are established by the press outlets. And, and by the way, for some of the more, for some of the, let's say, less reputable alternative press outlets, this is also the case because moralizing reinforces the in-group. And if so, if the people that you're listening to are only about talking to the people in, in your group, well, then, you know, they might say, screw those losers, those normies, those plebs. They don't understand. It's not the way you should think about that. And you shouldn't listen to people who say things like that. You should treat people with compassion in your life. And it's really tough to do when it relates to the news cycle, especially when you are looking into stuff, and especially when it's as serious as this passport business is. But, it, but you have to treat people with sympathy or else you won't get anywhere. The way you talk to people inside of the narrative must change. Because if you don't, because as you pay attention, you realize that like quicksand, people who struggle against the narrative are just as likely to suffocate as to set themselves free. Don't become bogged down when you're trying to free your friend. friend. So therefore, don't become bogged down when you're trying to free a friend or family member, lest you lose everything. Sometimes it's better for, again, I've made this point a lot. Sometimes it's better for you to just be a good person to people, to be somebody who's there for people in your life, than it is for you to make sure that they know you're right about everything. The next piece we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about is 
a lesson I drew from reading the Fourth Generational Warfare Handbook. Now, this is a handbook. Uh, I went looking for Fifth Generational Warfare stuff, and I actually did find a book recently that I'll be probably reading to talk about because I heard a lot of people talking about 5GW. And it's important then to know what 4GW was or 3GW, Fourth Generational Warfare, Third Generational Warfare, First Generational Warfare. The concept of 5GW relies upon the framework set forth by William S. Lind in the 1985 book Maneuver Warfare Handbook, which is reproduced in the appendix of the Fourth Generational Warfare Handbook. Now, to understand the four generations of modern warfare, we need to go back to the Peace of Westphalia, and we can start from there. So under this framework, right, the first generation of war could be considered like line and column tactics, kind of like what you'd see in the Revolutionary War. The second generation is all about controlled artillery and coordinated infantry, kind of like what you'd see in a World War II movie, right, and kind of sprung about in conjunction with World War I. The third generation, also called maneuver warfare, never was really, well, according to the guy Lind, he thinks it's a superior form of warfare, but it was never really replaced by the second generation, which is still what most of our, certainly most of like your modern infantry units are still going to go off of third, you know, maneuver warfare, third generation is going to be closer to like light infantry. And then he talks about this thing called fourth generational warfare. Now he considers fourth generational warfare a regression of kind, and he ties it to the lessening of the power of states, right? And this idea that under fourth generational warfare, we really don't fight the bat. We don't fight battles against governments as much. Of course, you know, the current conflict that we've been referring to in Ukraine this whole episode is, is a departure, but even that incorporates some elements of fourth generational warfare because it's not just the United, it's not just the government of Ukraine and just the government of Russia who's at odds. There's also larger, there's also a larger connection between the EU and between, um, and the United States, of course. We're going to get into that a little bit more as we go through the timeline, but I wanted to serve this up for you guys because it's worth, understanding the way military professionals conceive of warfare, we might say. Now, part of what makes war fourth generational warfare different is, again, to quote from it, conflicts have become many-sided rather than two-sided. The fact that the root of fourth generational war is a political, social, and moral phenomenon means that no pure military solution can be found under, for, under fourth generational threats. What most people then regard fifth-generational warfare as is one that puts non, non-kinetic means at the forefront. And by non-kinetic, we can understand that as you know, tr- what we traditionally think of as war. People with guns shooting, you know, opposing sides with guns shooting at each other or, or with uh, artillery fire or rockets, as the case may be. But fifth-generational warfare is far more about the non-kinetic forms, economic propagandistic ideas. It really is a war for your mind and for the perception and for a war for how you perceive the events that are occurring in front of you. I'd recommend reading the entire book, but there was one little like grid that he kind of put together that I thought was worth worth spending some time on. I kind of wrote this piece more in terms of like business tactics and that you can use this strategy of 
understanding the strategic, operational, and tactical level, as well as the physical, mental, and moral level as a way to try and compose a strategy as it relates to business. But of course, it is designed for warfare. Because of, in the fourth generation, right, so, so standard military procedure operates along strategic, operational, and tactical grounds. A standard, it would, so basically a tactical order given to, let's say, a squad on the battlefield should have the proper operational support and help advance the, the strategic goals of the overarching mission. And what Lind talks about in the Fourth Generational Warfare Handbook is how we also have to include the physical, mental, and moral components to this as well. And while you may win a tactical engagement, you could also simultaneously lose the moral part of the battle. So like, let's say, for example, you're trying to occupy a country, you could wipe out the entirety of the village but have you won the moral war? And I think this is a worthwhile endeavor as we, as we all start to learn what has actually been going on in Ukraine, as, 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 because that's what's going to happen. We're actually going to learn what happened in, a, in, in like a year or two. There's just too much information right now for us to be, and there's too many, there's too much information that's being fed to us. And so much of it is caught up within, again, an agenda-driven narratives that whatever people conceive of as the truth is not readily available. And hopefully throughout the conversation that we're having here, you start, you start to see how that takes shape, right? When you compare going out on a weekend and seeing people living their lives to what you might see online. And of course that there are horrors occurring in different parts of the world. You might, you might start to see the importance of this as well. The last piece, this is the one we've been leading up to, is a Ukraine-Russia timeline that makes sense. Because that's what we try to do here. Try to make sense of the world. And God help me if this hasn't been a very complicated thing for me to try to make sense of. Now, I think we're just going to read this piece. I have a couple of insights at the end I'm looking forward to sharing with you. So we're going to kind of just read through this, and then we're going to see where we're going to see where the conversation takes us at that point or whether we'll just chew on the meat of what is this very, very in-depth timeline that I've tried to put together. When do you start the clock? I think to reach an understanding of a situation, you have to know how we got here and what we do now. If we have those two things, then we can know you know, we have an understanding. We, under, we know what's going on, more or less, as best we're able. Most of what passes for news, especially, again, in, in, in the context that we've discussed this entire episode, these legacy outlets that have agenda-driven narratives, most of it ignores the first question, right? So it ignores how we got here, or it crafts an emotionally charged narrative to drive you in a particular direction. Even honest brokers will struggle with how much information to give their audience and weave it into a coherent narrative. When you begin to study world events, you notice what often looks like a new conflict can have some very old roots. It is my contention that the current, that the current war in Ukraine is just such a conflict. So this is a conflict that, to the outside observer, appears new, but really has some old roots. And when we uncover these roots, we start to see what's act. We we start to see what might actually be going on behind the scenes. 
and not even behind the scenes because behind the scenes implies that this is hidden. We can start to actually understand the motivations of the players on the table. Most university, government, and media personalities have a lot of opinions about what we do now, but I think it's worth belaboring how we got here. If for no other reason, then this is what I've tried to do is construct a working, somewhat simple historical narrative to, to explain what's going on. For most people, the conflict in Ukraine began on February 24th, 2022. Let's see, together, how far back in time we can go to establish the beginning of this conflict. So 2022, military invasion. On February 24th, Putin gives a speech. I have the English transcript if you want to read it or listen to it. Detailing why he felt it was necessary to recognize eastern Ukraine as independent and why he was justified in occupying the territory. Here's a brief excerpt. So this is from Putin's speech. In December of 2021, we made yet another attempt to reach agreement with the United States and its allies on the principles of European security and NATO's non-expansion. Our efforts were in vain. The United States has not changed its position. It does not believe it necessary to agree with Russia on a matter that is crucial for us. The United States is pursuing its own objectives while neglecting our interests. On January 19th, Biden gave a press conference where he said, we're in a situation where Vladimir Putin is about to, we've had, a, we've had very frank discussions, Vladimir Putin and I, and the idea that NATO is not going to be united, I don't buy. I've spoken to every major NATO leader. We've had the NATO-Russia summit. We've had other, the OSCE has met, etc. By the way, I'm just reading the, the quote from Biden verbatim. And so I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion, and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, etc. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the forces amassed on, amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia if they further in, invade Ukraine and that our allies and partners are ready to impose severe costs and significant harm on Russia and the Russian economy. And you know, we're going to fortify our NATO allies, I told him, on the eastern flank, if, in fact, he does invade. We're going to. I've already shipped over $600 million worth of sophisticated equipment, defensive equipment, to the Ukrainians. So here you start to see the more immediate causes for the recent conflict. And for people who have been observing the situation with as close to an objective viewpoint as you can manage, this has been very clear for a while. Most of the negotiations that have gone on between the United States, NATO, and Russia have had to do, and, and the, as it relates to the Ukraine, has had to do with the fact that Russia does not want Ukraine to join NATO, does not want Ukraine to join the EU, and does not want military weapons put in Ukraine on behalf, does not want U.S. military installments to be put in a place like Ukraine. Why? Because, of course, if you look on a map, Ukraine is effectively Ukraine is effectively a part of Russia, right? If you're in, you know, in the United States, it's akin to saying like, it's akin to saying Wisconsin and Illinois, right? New Jersey and New York. These are, these are places that are effectively neighbors. And so as the national, the North Atlantic trade, um, what does it NATO stand for? North, uh, North Atlantic uh, 
trade organization something or whatever it's it's an army unto itself it was an army created to fight the communists that even though the communists fell nato still exists and so nato effectively exists to oppose russian influence this is the this is the board as it was set in 2022 In December 31st, 2021, Al Jazeera reports, quote, Russia will move to eliminate unacceptable threats if the United States and NATO do not respond to the Kremlin's security demands. Again, I just kind of laid out what those security demands have been. The Kremlin says NATO expansion eastward and Kiev's growing ties with the body have undermined security in the region. Moscow claims such developments threaten Russia, contravene assurances given to it as the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, and compares it with the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis when the world came to the brink of nuclear war. And of course, if it wasn't clear, we are as close to that nuclear war as we have been since 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And of course, putting weapons and bases in Ukraine is very much akin to putting uh, the Soviets putting nuclear arms in Castro's Cuba. In July of 2021, Putin released, and I, I don't have an excerpt, but you can go and read it. We're going to kind of get into why we're going to get into some of the historical case for it as we go through my timeline. But Putin did write an article in July of 2021, giving his history of the ties between the what we today call the Russian and the Ukrainian people. So that's the most recent history. Talks that in retrospect always seem doomed to fail. Given prior engagements on the matter, these talks have largely circled around to reiterate, one, whether Ukraine would join NATO, two, whether Ukraine would join the European Union, and three, whether the U.S. government would put nuclear weapons or other such type, you know, missiles, ordnance, we might say, in a country like Ukraine. But let's see how much farther back in time we can travel. We're going to switch from the political to the religious, because people who aren't under people who don't understand the religious component to this entire situation are missing a huge piece of the puzzle. In 2018, October 15th, 2018, in specific, the Russian Orthodoxy severed Eucharistic ties with Constantinople after Constantinople recognized its independence of a Ukrainian Orthodox Church. There's an interesting article that I have in there as well about what that meant for the faithful that I found. But let's stay on this. So Russian Orthodoxy was, up until 2018, in communion with the broader Eastern Orthodox Church. This Orthodox Church came about, um, you know, this Orthodox Church is apostolistic in that they can trace their roots to Peter but they are not in communion with Rome. So you effectively have Roman Catholicism, and then you have Eastern Orthodoxy, of which there are multiple sects, multiple divisions, mo- most of those along some kind of ethnic line, right? So you would have the Greek Orthodox, you would have the Russian Orthodox, and as the case may be, you might even have Ukrainian Orthodox. So here's a quote. Here's a quote about this decision that was reached in, on October 15, 2018, or a little bit before that. With profound pain, the Holy Synod of the Russian Orthodox Church has taken the report of the Patriarch of Constantinople published on October 11, 2018, about the following decisions of the Holy Synod of the Patriarch of, of the Patriarch there's a weird H in here, of the Patriarch of Constantinople, confirming the intention 
quote, to grant autocephaly to the Ukrainian church, opening a starogopigion. That is a Greek word that I do not know how to say. <laughs> of the Patriarch of Constantinople in Kiev, restoring in the rank of bishop or priest the leaders of the Ukrainian schism and their followers and returning to their faithful church communion. Recalling the 1686 patent of the Patriarch of Constantinople on the transfer of the Metropolitan Metropolis of Kiev to the Moscow Patriarch as its part. So what happened then, so basically, here's a way of saying it, what matters in what matters in any complex organization, but especially a church, is the hierarchy of that church. And since effectively, according to the Russian Orthodox Patriarch, since 1686, Moscow has been able to name the Bishop of Kiev. That's going to be important as we move, as we keep traveling back in time. And when 2018, Constantinople basically said, we're not going to worry about that anymore. The Ukrainian church is its own church with its own set of bishops who can nominate their own people in a place like Kiev. Now we're going to jump back in time to 2014, the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. For the past year, this is an article from 11-21-2013, Ukraine shocks West with EU decision. For the past year, Ukraine insisted it was intent on signing a historic political and trade agreement with the European Union. But on Thursday, the government in Kiev made the surprising last-minute decision to suspend talks with the EU, drawing dismayed reaction from Europe and the United States. Commenting on the news just minutes after it broke, U.S. State Department spokeswoman Jen Psaki, hmm, interesting, funny that we see her now in the White House, that if reports were true and if the decision is the Ukrainian government's final decision, the Obama administration was disappointed. Saki said the U.S. believes there was ample time to resolve all remaining, all remaining obstacles to signing the associated agreement with sufficient effort and commitment. I've got another headline here from 3-4 of 2014. Putin, Ukraine has seen an anti-constitutional coup. 9-16 of 2014, Ukraine crisis. Rebels, grant, rebels granted self-rule and amnesty. In what would be referred to as the Minsk Agreements, Russia, Ukraine, and the United States reached a moderate ceasefire in 2014. Crimea was kept under Russia control and gave, and gave some of the ethnically Russian Ukrainian East autonomy. These would eventually be the areas that Putin declared sovereign and created the grounds for today's invasion or military campaign, depending, again, depending on the side you fall on. Quoting from the piece, Ukrainian MPs have granted self-rule to two parts of two eastern regions and an amnesty to pro-Russian rebels there. The law affecting Don Donetsk and reasons regions, which is in line with the 5 September ceasefire, was condemned by some members of parliament as capitulation. So the grand narrative of 2014 was that the Ukrainians elected... Um, Ukrainians elected a leader who was more pro-Russian than pro-Europe. And so whereas Ukraine at the time had been flirting with the idea of EU membership, they decided against it, in part because the Russian government promised them better terms on things like energy and oil. And remember, part of geopolitics is, is looking at the economics of it. So never forget the oil line, like literally the oil pipeline that runs through this entire story, because that's what Russia brings to the table. In addition, to in addition to its legacy of being a nuclear-armed power and having more nukes than most countries, 
Russia also brings oil to the table, and oil makes anybody very powerful in our mo- in, in the current world that we live in. So let's jump back in time again to 1991, the death of the Soviet Union. I, I included this chicken Kiev speech that George H.W. Bush gave, where he talks about how, like, he basically says freedom's a good thing, but, you know, you don't necessarily want to be completely op- independent from Moscow. Of course, I think within a few weeks, Ukraine was recognized as an independent state, but it's worth belaboring that point. Now we're going to jump to 1932, the Holodomor. If you don't know what the Holodomor was, it was a man-made famine of the Ukraine region by Soviet officials in Moscow, I think particularly Stalin, leading to the deaths of millions by starvation, including children. Here's a little bit about the Holodomor. The results of Stalin's campaign was a catastrophe. In spring of 1933, death rates in Ukraine spiked. Between 1931 and 1934, at least 5 million people perished of hunger across the USSR. Among them, according to a study conducted by a team of Ukrainian demographers, were at least 3.9 million Ukrainians. Police archives contain multiple descriptions of instances of cannibalism, as well as theft, lawlessness, and lynching. Mass graves were dug across the countryside. Hunger also affected the urban population, though many were unable to survive thanks to ration cards. Still, in Ukraine's largest cities, corpses could be seen on the streets. In World War II, Ukrainians would, because of the Holodomor, in World War II, Ukrainians, some Ukrainians greeted the Nazis as liberators against the Red Soviets. This led to the creation of neo-Nazi battalions and, set, and like positive Nazi sentiment that still operate in 2022 Ukraine. So one of the reasons that so so the fact that so there are neo-Nazi elements that are operating in Ukraine, and depending on who you talk to, they have various degrees of power. But I have in there linked an article from 2014 specifically talking about the Azov battalions. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who have a generally speaking. Nazi outlook on the world. 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution. On November 6th and 7th, 1917, or October 24th and 25th on the Julian calendar, leftist revolutionaries led by Bolshevik party leader Vladimir Lenin launched a nearly bloodless coup d'etat against the Duma's provisional government. The Russian Civil War ended in 1923 with Lenin's Red Army claiming victory and establishing the Soviet Union. In the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution, Ukraine was included as part of the USSR. So now we jump to 1686 AD. Moscow can name the Kiev bishop. This was alluded to above in my timeline. In contention is what lineage of bishops, quote, own the rights to nominate the Bishop of Kiev. You can learn more about the historical case presented in this speech, which is written in Russian, but you can translate it that I have linked to, and an article detailing the presentation made to the, to the, to the uh, council at Constantinople. Under the apostolic tradition, who can nominate what position determines the hierarchy of the church? Whereas Roman Catholicism all falls underneath the Pope, Eastern Orthodoxy has separate lineages for the various ethnicities in communion with Constantinople. Therefore, if, the Mos- if Moscow names the Kiev bishop, Kiev belongs to what we today would call the Russian Orthodox Church. If they are separate, 
Well, if they are not, then they're separate, separatable from each other. And this brings us to the last year to remember, which is 988 AD, when Vladimir the Great was baptized in 988 AD. This is how it was referred to. This is how it was given to me as a friend by my friend. All Slavic people became Christian. Vladimir ruled a land known as Kievan Rus. Obviously, we've been hearing a lot about Kiev and the various spellings of that city, as it is the capital of Ukraine. Rus, in this context, is clearly a precursor, that is to say, a name that came before of a people who would eventually be called Russian. Religiously speaking, this, as far as I can tell, is the heart of the conflict. Kiev is considered by both modern Russians and modern Ukrainians to be the cultural home of their people. To the extent that they are the same or different is very much a matter of historical debate. However, it's critical to understand that both sides claim fealty to this historical figure. So if you talk to a Ukrainian, if you talk to the most ardent Ukrainian nationalist Ukrainian, he will still say Vladimir the Great is why he's a Christian. That is, you know, that is one of the, he is the reason why the people are, are Christian. And if you talk to a Russian, the most virulent nationalist Russian, he will also thank Vladimir the Great for his Christianity. And it's all tied to the city of Kiev, the modern day city of Kiev. While communism tried to stamp out Christianity in Eastern Europe, they failed. Similar to the Sykes-Picot and other agreements as old empires fell, we can understand that some of these borders in the aftermath of the Soviet Union don't necessarily follow the lines that were established by ancient tribes and cultures. If you have lived in the United States after World War II, which would be a majority of my audience, you have enjoyed unprecedented stability, not only in your own life, but the world around you. Growing up, we were taught the question of borders had been largely resolved. After all, in our democratic age, the will of the people was recognized. Ergo, only those areas that were non-democratic could, and perhaps should, lose their borders. Most of the borders drawn in the Middle East, for example, were arbitrarily done after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So too, it would seem, with the borders of Eastern Europe. And of course, there have been preceding conflicts that map out precisely this point. While the Soviet Union fell, NATO survived. What was an organization meant to fight communism then, today exists to fight the government of Russia. Curtis Yarvin has some of the clearest analysis of this situation from an American perspective. The first country, this is quoting from a piece of his, I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. The first country is Malorossia, or Little Russia. Malorossia, which has its own national identity, is and always has and has always been since before the birth of the USA as much a province of Russia as Texas is an American state. This is him trying to talk about the conflict in Ukraine and the conflict over Ukraine, we might say. Its capital is Kiev, which every educated Gen X American knew as one of the three great Russian cities. Kiev was a Russian city when America was the dominion of New England. Its second city is Odessa, another great Russian city. 
whence some of my answers, his, his ancestors came. If anyone thought my grandfathers were not Russians, it is only because they were Jews. This is Yarvin writing. The second country is Ruthenia. The easy way to use this historically complex label in the modern world is to define it as the area inhabited by Ruthenian speakers, but which was never part of the Russian Empire. Its capital is Lvov, formerly known as the Polish city of Lvov. I don't know if those pronunciations are right, by the way. Various parts of Ruthenia changed hands between Poland and Austria at various times, depending on, as he puts it, who had more jazzy uniforms. Wikipedia, in its first sentence on the, quote, Ukrainian language, calls it Ukrainian, historically also called Ruthenian. As students of history, we prefer that our labels for lands and tongues not be historically changed for political reasons. Thank you, diplomats. It is easy to see from the data that Ruthenian in the Russian Empire is a country language. 95% of its speakers in the 1987 census are classified as rural rather than urban making it. As I said, a rustic argot. Comparing it to Welsh and Wales was funny because it was also a dig at the Welsh, an Anglo tradition since Shakespeare, but it would perhaps be more correct to say that in Kiev now, Ruthenian is roughly as important as Spanish is in Los Angeles. If someone told you that Los Angeles has a Spanish name and was once part of the Spanish Empire, they would be telling you the truth. If they told you that 30% of the population spoke as much Spanish as English, 15% of the population more Spanish than English, and 5% Spanish only, you might think they were lowballing a bit. If they told you that Los Angeles was run by Spanish-only speakers, you would be right to refuse to believe them. And what he goes on is to draw the point that what we see is maybe a linguistic separation that modern democratic ideals turned into a country. That's how we get the borders of what today we call Ukraine and Russia. It's worth leaving you, my reader, my listener, with a puzzler to think about over the next couple of days. By the way, this piece isn't out yet, so if you go looking for it, it's going to be released this Wednesday. Some American commentators have pointed out that the Biden administration seems to care more about Ukraine's borders with Russia than with the border between the United States and Mexico. I think, by the way, that's an accurate assessment, but not for the reasons they would say. Taking an anti-formalist analysis, we can understand that just because something is written down on a map or Wikipedia writes it down does not make it so and does not necessarily in transmit the full meaning of something. It would follow from this that we, need, that we may need to make informal inferences based on the actions of powerful people rather than what is taken as gospel what is written down. In other words, try this thought on for size. The border you defend is your foreign border. Let's try that again. The border you defend is actually your foreign border. The United States government isn't concerned with migration from Central and South America because the United States government in its current form considers the entire world as part of its territory. Where we see conflicts, therefore, 
are the areas that the United States is actively trying to conquer or quell, as the case may be, like Iraq and Syria, or maintain control over, like Ukraine. Texas and Mexico, therefore, from the position of the United States government, are equally conquered territories. It may seem crazy at first, but like a geopolitical optical illusion, as you relax your preconceived notions, a new picture starts to form. And it's that kind of picture that I think really gives us an insight into the more complex layers of this current engagement. But that's where we're going to leave it for today. I hope I gave you something to chew on. Share the show with a friend. Make sure you follow me on social media at the LB Muniz. If you like what you heard today, go to beenawake.com to subscribe for future updates. My name is LB Muniz, and I am not one with the woke.